you know that um, when you ask the Lord to help you to say yes to his will, that's a prayer he will readily answer. Matthew chapter 3 is where we are again this morning. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Our subject this morning is this, the significance of Jesus' baptism. The baptism of Jesus and the events surrounding it was a momentous occasion in the history of redemption. It was significant, obviously, for Jesus. And it was significant for all who would believe savingly on him. The importance for both our Lord and for us will be seen in the text before us and related text as they are unfolded. The initial heading for the exposition of the verses that I just read, and the significance that they provide for us, is this, the Son's obedience and identification. John's baptism was for sinners. It was a sign of their confession of and repentance from sin. Jesus, however, was no sinner in need of such confession and repentance. In fact, he was the redeemer of sinners. And John the Baptist knew this. And when he saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized, the baptizer said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The divinely appointed, blemish-free, perfect, sacrificial lamb was coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. John understood that he was the Redeemer. Scripture is clear about the sinlessness of Jesus. One of the texts that we can, of course, turn to is this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, when the preacher of Hebrews is telling people about our high priest. He says this in part from that verse, one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. 
Jesus Christ, looking back on his life, as he lived his life through his ministry, he lived it sin free. John the Baptist, his behavior toward, toward Jesus that day at the River Jordan further testifies to the sinless nature of Jesus. In verse 14, John tried to prevent him, that is Jesus. He didn't want to baptize him. And the Greek form of the word prevent indicates that John repeatedly endeavored to keep from baptizing Jesus. Stated another way, he didn't just say it one time. He said, no, 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 I can't baptize you. I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John knew whereof he spoke. First of all, it was a personal admission to his own sinfulness. He understood that he, by rights, he had no business baptizing the sinless Lamb of God. John had his own sins. And it just seemed utterly inappropriate that he would baptize the Lamb of God. The reality is, on that day at the Jordan River, there was only one sinless person present, and that was none other than the Son of God. Jesus, he said to him in verse 15, permit it. He says, permit the act of baptism Though seemingly inappropriate, John, permit this. Because really it is appropriate at this time. Say, how is it, Lord? How is it appropriate? Why would you say to him, permit it? He says, before in this way, verse 15, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The phrase... Fulfill all righteousness means, quote, to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. Jesus was going to be obedient. You see, John's baptism was authorized by heaven. God is the one who had commanded that John baptize. Anything that God commands is God's will. Jesus submitted to God's will in baptism. He did it because God had said, be baptized. And Jesus throughout his life, and it's without question at all, nobody can contradict it. He obeyed God's will perfectly. He had no sins. No reason to be baptized like everybody else. But he was going to obey what God had commanded. Jesus, as I've already alluded to it, let me say it again, he obeyed all God's moral demands during his life in ministry. And that was important. Very important. It was essential for his saving work. There couldn't be one mark against Jesus in his life relative to obedience to God. It, if it had been, if there had been, it would have disqualified him for his saving work. That's why it's so significant for him. 
It was an expression of his obedience. By the way, Jesus is a model for us. We are to emulate him. Christ's likeness includes obedience to the will of God. When you're growing in likeness to Christ, when you find yourself obeying God more and more. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's what Christ's likeness is. If you just read through the Gospels, you see Jesus is doing the will of the Father. He never deviated from that all the time, every day, every evening, whenever it was, whatever he's doing, he was doing the will of the Father. And as we become more like him, we'll do that too. Obedience. Now, you need to know something. The significance of Jesus' baptism, it was a demonstration of his obedience to the will of the Father. But the significance of his baptism doesn't end there. It's also his identification with those for whom he came to save. That would be you and me. <laughs> he identified with us in our humanity. Isaiah 53 Verse 12, 700 years in advance of this event, says this, Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore, bore the sins of many. He was numbered with sinners. He identified with them, but he bore their sins. Now, what Jesus is saying here, to fulfill all righteousness, he took upon himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect Savior and substitute for us. Had to do that. We needed a perfect Savior. We couldn't have any other kind. God wouldn't accept anyone less than a perfect Savior. Remember John called him the, the Lamb of God? you remember lambs had to be, the one sacrifice had to be without a blemish? He pointed, the Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs were pointing to the Lamb of God. Substituted then for the sinning, erring Israelites, and Christ substituted for us. Harry Ironside expressed it this way, Jesus' identification with us. He said, quote, he who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized by John, that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life. Indeed, lay down his life. That's why that was momentous. Laying down his life is what Jesus was referring to in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Remember in that portion of Luke's gospel, starting back in the ninth chapter of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. 
He was determined to go there. That was his mission. And when we get to Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus said this, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now the baptism that our Lord mentions there was an immersion into divine judgment. He would be, as it were, swallowed up in the waves of divine wrath. As he was bearing the penalty for our sin. Uh, these words that Jesus said about distressed. Don't get by that too quickly. I almost did. And I had to put the brakes on. And say, wait, 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 wait. He was distressed because he knew he was headed to this immersion in divine judgment. The wrath of God like waves of billows would roll over him. And he was headed to that. He knew what was coming. And I had to pause and say, thank you, Lord. He knew what he's headed for, but he was doing it for us. You and me. There's no other way. To be our savior than other than being baptized in the wrath of God. Jesus' baptism was a preview of this baptism in the wrath of God. That, that was another aspect of his baptism. Our Lord's baptism, the significance of it, continues to be shown in verse 16. Under the heading, the Spirit's anointing. Jesus had been baptized in the same manner as everybody else. <laughs> I mean, they had come to John, and John was taking him in the water, bringing him out of the water. Jesus did the same. And by the way, there were, it was, this was all public. There were a lot of people around that day. Jesus' baptism wasn't private. It wasn't off in some corner somewhere. But there was a profound difference between Jesus' baptism and the immersions of others and the aftermath of it. And we see it in verse 16. Jesus came up out of the water. And then Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew uses this word, behold. He does that because he wants, hey, pay attention. <laughs> Look at this. The heavens were opened. This is a significant event. Uh, this is significant that Jesus is there and Jesus has been baptized. And then he comes out of the water after the baptismal event. And Matthew says, behold, the heavens opened. Pay attention, readers. This was an important phenomenon. In the scripture, whenever you see that phrase, the heavens were opened. It signified a special event. 
God was going to do something. Either he was going to manifest himself or he was going to speak or both. In the Old Testament, we, we uh, know this. Let me give you an example. Ezekiel, the prophet. Ezekiel, prophesying in Babylon. Says Ezekiel 1.1. 1, 1, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. God was going to reveal. And if you read through Ezekiel 1 and you see the visions of God, an uh, amazing thing. Ezekiel 1, 1 through verse 28. You see, God discloses himself. He reveals himself. And you read through that and you think, my goodness. I still don't know what it means. I just know God revealed himself. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, Stephen, remember, he was being stoned. He had preached the word of God, and he indicted the religious leaders who were opposing the gospel, opposing Christ, stoned him. Smarter Stephen. It says in Acts seven fifty six, the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man was standing at the right hand of God. In the future, the heavens will be opened. When you go to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you go to chapter 19, verse 11, and John on the Isle of Patmos, as he's receiving this revelation from the Spirit of God, he says, And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat, sat on it, his name was Holy and True. Who was it? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back to earth. One day the heavens are going to open and he's going to come back here. And I believe we'll be with him. We won't be down here looking up. We'll be up there looking down. This act of God opening heavens at the sky mark uses a word that uh, means to tear schizo tear it and the sky is opened now the text before our eyes the one we're looking at here the heavens were opened and this act of god to because he's getting ready to reveal himself the holy spirit is coming Do understand, I guess I need to say this. Don't think this is the first time the Holy Spirit shows up on earth. You do understand, he's everywhere. But this is a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit in relation to Jesus. Don't think, oh, where has he been? All these? Oh, he's just been up in heaven, then he came down to anoint Jesus. No, 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 no. He is omnipresent. Psalm 139, among others. And this is significant because we're getting a glimpse of the, the Trinitarian reality of the nature of God. The Spirit of God is the third member of the Trinity. He descends on the second member of the Trinity. And in verse 17, we know the, third, the first member of the Trinity, God the Father speaks. This is a Trinitarian event. The whole Trinity is involved. Does that not make it significant?
This is underscored by this reality. These two members of the Trinity, the anointing and the approval. Anointing of the Spirit and approval of the Father. Now, the text is verse 16. Descending as a dove. This is a simile, figure of speech. The Holy Spirit did not descend being a dove. As a dove. He is compared to a dove. He is compared to a dove in the dove's gentle character. He descended in some physical manifestation. Lighting on Jesus. Gently. His doves are gentle. What is the point of the Holy Spirit's coming upon Jesus? It's the anointing. We need just a moment to talk about this. Luke chapter 4. The word of God and fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Our Lord Jesus is in uh, his hometown, Nazareth. Place where he grew up. In synagogue. Verse 17 of Luke 4. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Let me just say here for a few minutes or moments, not minutes. (laughs) I probably could, but we won't. Jesus had to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the work that God the Father assigned him. The poor there, let me uh, illuminate. He's not talking about just the materially poor. The gospel goes to everyone because everyone apart from salvation in Christ is poor. You follow me? Spiritually poor, bankrupt. There's no one has anything they can bring to God to offer him for salvation. We're all busted. (laughs) Broke, busted, as I used to say, and disgusted. (laughs) Just the poor. He's going to release the captives, captives to sin, and recovery of sight to the spiritually blind. Set those who are oppressed by the devil, set them free. Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now is the time of salvation. That's what Jesus Christ was saying. And it was necessary for him to be anointed. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the commission of the mission. That the father had given to him. You say, why is that? After all, is he not God, the second member of the Trinity? Yes. But of course, you have to uh, take all biblical revelation to have an understanding of what's transpiring 
here are transpired thin. Remember this. At our Lord's incarnation, that is coming in human flesh, becoming a man, it says in Philippians 2, 7, that he, quote, emptied himself. The phrase, of course, does not denote that he emptied himself of his deity. That's an impossibility. Rather, it teaches us that Jesus, in his humanity and in humility, laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes and prerogatives. When he became a man, he determined that he would lay aside that which he had exercised for all eternity up to the point of incarnation, his divine prerogatives and divine attributes. All that that is being God, he laid it aside. He emptied himself. That takes humility. the independent use of them. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what our Lord did. That's why he needed to be anointed so he could do what the Father wanted. His humanity need to be empowered to do the work. There's another reason why he was uh, anointed by the Spirit. John tells us, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34. The anointing of Jesus, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him there that day at the river Jordan identified Jesus as Messiah. John 1, verse 31, the Baptist speaks. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He was identified to Israel. They were there and, and they saw those the River Jordan and John the Baptist recognized him. Yes, they were cousins, but he didn't know he was the Messiah. Until the Holy Spirit came and descended and landed upon him, then he realized, ah, he is the one. He is the Son of God. And we have his testimony. So we've seen two things thus far. The Son's obedience and identification. Second, the Spirit's anointing. Now we need to see another. The Father's testimony. 
verse 17. The deep significance of Jesus' baptism then in this verse is further amplified by the Father's involvement. Here we see in verse 17, Matthew (laughs) does it again. He says, Behold, pay attention. A voice out of the heavens. This is none other than the voice of God the Father. This is evident by the way Jesus is referred to by this voice. He calls him my beloved son. My beloved son. Who else in heaven can utter these words than God the Father? Beloved. Deep love. This relationship between the Father and the Son was profound. In fact, we'll never be able to plumb its depths. This profound relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Jews present that day the words, my beloved son. It is to be connected to Psalm 2 7. Psalm 2 7 is a Psalm 2 is a, is a messianic psalm. Psalm about Messiah. It's a prophecy of Messiah. Psalm 2. And this recalling him, my beloved son, Similar to the words used in that psalm when it says, you are my son. Now, we need to explain son um, here because we don't often understand biblical terminology and how it was used. We, we think a son is differently, perhaps, than the way the Bible uses it. Son in scripture identifies a person's nature. For example, remember Barnabas? Companion of Paul. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He was so much an encourager that he was identified with encouraging. That was his nature. He was an encourager by nature. So he was. Jesus had a couple of disciples, you recall, their names were James and John. And Jesus, (laughs) he called them sons of thunder. Because he recognized in them a personality trait of bombacity. In Jewish culture, an underage male child was considered a boy. Only when he became an adult was he considered a son in the fullest sense. Then he was considered, now get this, equal with his father. Whenever you called someone son, oh, he's equal to his dad. You remember when Jesus uh, said, my father works and I work, John chapter five. And the Jews were angry with him saying, you're a man and you make yourself equal with God. Jesus was because he was. When God the Father called Jesus his son, he is saying he and I share equally, fully the divine nature and essence. 
What are you saying? I hope you believe that. You ought to believe it. Because that's orthodox teaching, right? In Hebrews chapter 1, I don't have this in my notes. I just thought about it. I'm going to share it with you. I want to dispel any faulty notions that's maybe lingering in the corner of your mind somewhere. Hebrews chapter 1, 1, it says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, he's talking about his son, and in verse 3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You got that? Exact representation of his nature. And let me finish it off. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Hmm. Upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, that the language there in the, he, in, the, in the Greek is that he is moving things to their destined end. And when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high majesty, referring to the Father. So the Father saying, this is my son. (laughs) He has the divine essence. He is, if you read further in Hebrews, you'll see the father calls him God. Now, in our text in Matthew 3, the import of the surrounding event, the baptism of Jesus, the father continues the final clause. In whom I am well pleased. Those words come from Isaiah 42.1. Slight change, but it's a reference there to the beginning of the prophecies of God's suffering servant who would atone for Israel's sin. The, the prophecies of God's suffering servant began in, in Isaiah 42 and extends all the way to Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53 that glorious passage that talks about the substitutionary atonement of the one who's going to come, meaning Jesus Christ. Further, the testimony of the Father here is a testimony of approval expressed in the words, I am well pleased. This affirms Jesus' sinlessness. We've talked about that. His utter lack of sin. I read somewhere where uh, it's like God had examined Jesus. Can you imagine? When you're examined by the all-knowing, all-seeing eye of God, you don't miss a thing. Right? Let me give you an example. I miss stuff. <laughs> it's a homely example. 
I might try to clean something. My wife said, she shows me what I miss and she gets it. I miss stuff. In a far transcendent way, God doesn't miss anything. If there had been any imperfection, even the smallest, he would have seen it, right? No imperfection could be found in him. The one who would offer himself as a sacrifice for sins had to be perfect. Why is that? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says this about God. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. End of quote. God the Father approved of his son. The spotless lamb of God. I'm going to conclude this little message with these words. The essential message of Christianity is that Jesus is the son of God. That he is the Messiah. And that his work was to save his people from their sin. At our Lord's baptism, these truths were asserted. That's the significance of them. The significance of Jesus' baptism, we could put it like this, the divine revelation of his person, perfection, and purpose. Wrapped up in these verses. We have the revelation or testimony of a prophet named John. The first and second persons of the Trinity. And it's reserved here for us in the infallible, inerrant word of God. He is the one that people were to put their faith in, Jesus Christ. There's no reason for anyone not to trust him as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done so, you do so against all the evidence as to who Jesus is. Trust him if you haven't. He alone is the Savior. There is no other. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bless your name for the realities that we've studied this morning and now afternoon. We thank you for your graciousness in being our Redeemer. Thank you for the momentous occasion that revealed who our Redeemer is more fully. May our hearts rejoice in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. May we love him more and delight in him more by the work of your spirit in our hearts as believers. For any unbeliever in this room or listening by live stream, open his or her eyes to the truth that 
he or she may trust fully, solely, in the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his glorious saving name. Amen.